Good morning. Great to see you today. Uh, great to be able to be here and worship the Lord together. We have uh, a number of visitors with us today. We want you to know that we are very thankful for your presence. Uh, we're thankful for the members too, but um, we... <laughs> We always appreciate new faces, uh, as well as the well, as well as the other faces. I'm not going to say the old faces, uh, as well as the other. We're just glad to see everybody. That's what I'm trying to get across here. We're glad that uh, that you're here to be a part of our worship today, and uh, hope that you will be blessed by the worship this morning, by our classes later on, uh, if possible, by our our uh, worship and study this evening, and uh, all the things that this day uh, holds for us. Let me tell you a story. That never happened. The prophet Ezekiel was with the exiles in the land of Babylon. And he was by the river Chebar. And one day he says the word of the Lord came to him. And when the word of the Lord came to him, he saw a dark cloud coming on the horizon. And brilliant light shining around that cloud. And out of that brilliant light came four living creatures. That's all he calls them, four living creatures, and amazing creatures they were. Each of them had four faces. Each of them had four wings. They used two of the wings to cover their bodies. They used the other two to fly. And when they were flying, he could see human hands under their wings. And in addition to the four living creatures, he saw, I guess what you'd describe as a chariot. But it had four wheels, one on each of its four sides. And the four wheels were all concentric circles. And around the rims of those wheels, they were filled with human eyes. And that chariot would go any direction it wanted to go, but it never had to turn. It just moved north, south, east, west, whichever way it wanted to go. And above the chariot, he had a vision of the glory of God. He saw something so magnificent and so glorious that he could scarcely describe it. And as he was considering this revelation of God's glory and standing in awe of it, he says, the word of the Lord came to me. God spoke to him. And God said to him, I'm sending you to the people of Israel to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. He said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. And then he explained to him what that meant. He said, I'm setting you as a watchman, and if you see someone committing wickedness and you warn them and they don't repent, then their wickedness will be on themselves. That's their problem. As we'd say today, that's on them. But if you see someone committing wickedness and you don't warn them, then that's on you. And I'll hold you to account. And Ezekiel heard those words and he said, Lord, I'm just not comfortable with that. I think you'd better get somebody else. Now, if you're at all familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you know that everything I told you is true of that last statement. Ezekiel did not, would not, dared not tell God that he wouldn't do his will, that he was uncomfortable 
doing his will. I'm sure he was uncomfortable, but he did it anyway. I want to tell you two statements this morning that I want you to remember. First of all, this one. No Christian ever grew spiritually by refusing to do that which was uncomfortable or challenging or inconvenient. No Christian ever grew spiritually by doing only that which was easy or comfortable. And the other statement is this. No church ever became what God wanted it to be, carrying out God's will in this world by doing only that which was convenient or easy or by refusing to take on any challenge that made its members uncomfortable. In fact, the Bible from the beginning to the end is, is the story of people who were challenged by God to do that which was extremely inconvenient which was extremely uncomfortable, which at times was even dangerous in order to accomplish his will in, this, in his world. Think first of all about Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham was called to leave his homeland and his family and go to a land that he did not know. How uncomfortable is that? I want you to go someplace where, that, you, that you don't even know. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I'm just telling you that I'm going to take you there and I'm going to bless you there and, and entrust the Bible says Abraham went. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And later, Abraham was challenged to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And one of the promises God had made to Abraham was, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have many, many descendants. And Abraham had to be thinking in his mind, how in the world can this possibly happen if I offer my only son in sacrifice? But he was willing to do it anyway. Till the hand of God stopped him. And think about Moses, who was to become the deliverer of God's people and called to go and stand and to face down the most powerful ruler in the world at that time and to tell him, here's what God says, you let my people go. Knowing full well ahead of time that he wasn't going to be doing, he wasn't going to do that. And then later to be called to lead those ungrateful people for 40 years in the wilderness to a promised land that he himself could not enter. And then when he was done, God called Joshua and challenged him to step into the enormous shoes left by Moses and to lead the people in the conquest of the land and lead them in battle and do whatever was necessary to take control of the land that God has promised them. And then think about others such as Samson and Deborah and other judges who were raised up to deliver their people from oppression and to lay their lives on the line in order to, that God's people might be free. Remember Nathan the prophet who was told by God to go into the presence of King David and tell him a parable about a man who had done a despicable thing. He was a rich man and he took the poor pet lamb of, of a poor man and he killed it and he cooked it and he fed it to his guests instead of taking something from his own flocks and herds and then when David became enraged to say that man who did such a thing deserves to die to stand in his face and say you are the man and to expose his murderous adultery how uncomfortable was that 
And then there was Daniel who prayed when it could have cost him his life. There were other prophets who were ignored, mocked, killed because they continued to tell uncomfortable truths. And the same story continues in the New Testament. At the outset of his ministry, Jesus called James and John and said, follow me. And they got up and they left their father and they left their nets and they left their boats and they followed him. They left their family and they left the family business, the only means of livelihood that they had. And they just went with Jesus because he told them to. And when another man came up to Jesus and he said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but first let me go bury my father. Jesus said, listen, nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You either come and follow me or you do not. When the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest, Jesus said, I'll tell you who's the greatest among you. It's the one who serves. It's the one who becomes a servant not the one who rules. And when he sent the apostles out to proclaim the kingdom, he said, understand this, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You can count on that. When the religious leaders in Jerusalem threatened Peter and John, if they didn't stop preaching in the name of Jesus, they said, do whatever you got to do. We must obey God rather than men. Paul told his young protege, Timothy, to preach the word in season and out of season, when it was convenient and when it wasn't, when people wanted to hear it and when they didn't. And when Peter waffled on whether or not Gentiles had to practice Judaism in order to be Christians, Paul says, I rebuked him to his face. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that was for the both of them? For Paul to have to rebuke a fellow apostle to his face in the presence of other people and for Peter to accept that rebuke and not become the lifelong enemy of Paul. And when the early Christians were tempted to give up following Jesus because of persecution, the writer of Hebrews told them this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You're not there yet. In fact, the bottom line is this, the words comfortable and convenient, while we use them a lot in connection with how we practice our faith, those are not biblical words. They're never used that way. And that ought to tell us something. But here's a question, why? Why does it have to be so difficult? to carry out God's will in this world? Why are there so many challenges? Why are there so many obstacles? Why is it a mistake to back away from everything that makes us uncomfortable? And the answer is simply this. We need it. We need it. We need it for our spiritual growth. We need it for our spiritual development. We don't like those challenges. We don't like those difficult situations. We don't like those things that are sometimes frightening to us, but we need them in order to build stamina and endurance. That's why James started his letter the way that he did. He's writing to people who were oppressed for their faith, and he says, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Not just bless your heart when you do, or hang in there when you do, but count it all joy when you do, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We will never attain spiritual maturity 
unless we are willing to accept the difficult challenges and embrace those challenges in our lives. You see, without trials, we don't learn how to be steadfast. And if we're not steadfast, we cannot grow spiritually. And maybe if you're finding yourself perpetually weak spiritually, maybe here's the answer. Maybe God keeps putting things in front of you that you need to step up to, but you habitually back away from them because they're difficult. Maybe the church never quite becomes what the church could be because we look at the challenges. As Israel looked at the promised land and the giants who lived there and got afraid and wouldn't go forward in the way that God had told them to do in faith. We need challenges. We need the resistance to build our stamina. It's like lifting weights, and I am not speaking from experience here. <laughs> But it's like lifting weights. I've watched people do it. Lifting weights is like work. It fascinates me. I could watch it all day long. Lifting weights. How do you, how do, you do it? How do the bodybuilders get to How did Arnold get to be Arnold? <laughs> Let me tell you, it wasn't by lifting the five-pound dumbbells over and over and over and over and over and over and over. It's because he progressed from one degree of difficulty to another, from one weight to a heavier one until he finally became who and what he was. Some of you may have heard of Biosphere 2. Biosphere 2 was an, an enclosed uh, ecological system built out in the Arizona desert. And it was built for the purpose of, of seeing if, if humans could construct their, their own world, basically, their own uh, ecosystem where they could survive in outer space. Could we go into outer space and could we construct an ecosystem where we could live there with all the things that we need? And so they built this, this complex of buildings, over three acres totally. It was a sequence of enclosed buildings and it had various kind of, of environments in them. It, it had a rainforest in it. It had its own ocean. It had farmland in it. It had forests in it. And the idea of the, the whole thing was to see if people could live in outer space with the ecosystems that they made. But it wasn't in existence very long until something really strange began to happen. The trees started to just fall over. They just started falling over. And the scientists who were involved in it thought, what, what's going on here? Why are the trees falling over? Because when the trees fell over, then all the life forms that depended on the trees started to die out because they needed the trees, and the trees just fell over. And so they did a lot more research, spent a lot more money, and, and figured out finally what the problem was. And the problem was there was no wind. There was no wind. They had not factored in wind as necessity for an ecosystem. You see, wind, when it blows against trees even as they're small, and they begin to sway back and forth. They build up what's called stress wood. And the stress wood is what enables them as they grow and get bigger and bigger to stand up under their own weight and to withstand all but the strongest storms. And without the wind blowing against them, those trees in Biosphere 2 just fell over. They couldn't even hold up their own weight. They had to have the resistance of the wind blowing against them 
So they just fell down because they didn't have it. Do you see the point there? We have to have that kind of resistance too. We have to have those things that push back against us. We have to have those things that challenge us with circumstances that get us out of our comfort zones so that we develop that spiritual stress wood that enables us to, to hold up our own weight and enables us to stand firm when the storms come. I told you a story that wasn't true, that never happened. I want to tell you one that did. It's about my dad's youngest brother, my Uncle Dan. My Uncle Dan was the nose gunner in a B-24 Liberator bomber in World War II. If you know what one of those planes looks like, the nose of that plane was made out of plexiglass and there was a machine gun mounted in it and somebody had to be in the nose of that thing to operate the machine gun and Dan got the job of doing that because to get to that you had to slide down a chute that was just about that wide and he was the only person in the crew skinny enough to do it and so he got the honor of being the nose gunner right out there on the front of the plane one day they had made a bombing run over the oil fields of Romania and they were almost back to their base in Italy. They could see the Adriatic Sea, but they were still over Yugoslavia. And they were attacked from below and, and from, by fighters above. And the plane was critically damaged and they had to bail out. And that's how Dan became a prisoner of war. He thought that for sure the next morning he was going to be shot. He thought his life was just about to end. He was 18. He thought he was going to die. But he didn't. He was sent to a prison camp. This is in 1945, and near the end of the war, the Nazi forces knew that the Americans were closing in from one end and the Soviets from the other, and so they began to march 5,000 prisoners through the Black Forest of Germany in the coldest winter on record. 1,500 of them died. They didn't have much clothing. They had even less food. They ate anything they could find. They ate grass that they pulled by the side of the road. They ate rats. When they'd come to a farm, they'd pilfer whatever they could. They'd eat the, the food out of a pig's trough. They'd eat anything they could get their hands on. 1,500 of them died. When it was over and they were finally liberated, and Dan was on a troop ship coming home. He would get in the chow line and, and go through and get his plate of food and sit down and eat it and then go get back in line again. And he said he just did that over and over and over because he was so famished and so psychologically damaged by thinking that he couldn't get enough to eat. And that was his experience in the war. In 1953, eight years later, he sat down and wrote out his story because he was sure he'd never live to be able to tell it if he didn't. He thought, all those experiences are going to cause me to die young. With what I went through, I can't possibly live to an old age. Well, he made it to 80. He made it to be 80 years old in spite of a whole lot of other health problems. And he had children and grandchildren 
and great-grandchildren. Here's a question. Why didn't he die young? Why didn't he die when he was 35? Why didn't his body give out when he was 40? How did he make it so long? How did so many World War II veterans who survived D-Day and the sinking of the Indianapolis and horrendous experiences in prisoner of war camps, how did they live into their 90s? I've met a lot of them. And every time I've met them, I've wondered, how did you, how did you do that? And the answer becomes pretty obvious. Those experiences made them tougher. It made them stronger. They developed stress wood. And it made them strong so that they could live to a ripe old age. And that's what scripture says our trials do for us. Are they hard? Yes. Does scripture say they're really not so bad? Never. It just says they are what we need in order to be strong. And if we're always shielding ourselves from trials, from anything that makes us uncomfortable, then we gain no endurance. And what will happen then when the wind does blow? We'll just fall over. So what's the lesson in all this? Should we seek trials? Should we try to suffer so that we'll become stronger? Should we add weights to our own barbells so that we can develop the strength that we need? And the answer to that is no, because living by faith will provide plenty of its own challenges, more than enough for you to develop resistance and opposition to help you build that faith and that spiritual strength that you need. The lesson is this. It is to embrace the fact that it isn't going to be easy and to embrace the fact that all, just because something is difficult or uncomfortable or inconvenient or threatening to us doesn't mean we should avoid it or we should back away from it. It may mean that this is the very thing that God has sent me. This may be the very thing that I need in order to develop the spiritual strength that God wants me to have because there may be something worse coming down the road. There may be a greater trial. And if I don't face this one, if I don't deal with it in faith, who knows what will happen? Who knows what will happen. Playing it safe will make us just like those trees in Biosphere 2. At some point, we'll just fall down for no apparent reason. But there is a reason. And the reason is that we turned away from challenges and circumstances and situations that could have made us strong. We opted for a convenient faith. And we chose the path of least resistance. We opted for a comfortable faith, and we paid the price. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, endured the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or 
faint-hearted. Consider him. Don't just consider him. Follow him. When it's easy and when it's not. I promise you it will not always be comfortable. Scripture promises you that it will not always be comfortable. But it also says this. It will always, always be worth it. If you haven't yet begun to follow him, you're ready today to confess your faith in him, be baptized into him, embrace that life of faith with all of its challenges. And we invite you to come and be baptized into him today. Let's stand together and sing. I must needs go home by the way of the cross.